Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Earshots and Canyon, and we've got a giveaway and a discount code for you lovely listeners. Earshots Bluetooth headphones have got you covered for staying motivated while you ride and train. Their patented magnetic ear clip solves the problem of earphones falling out or constantly dislodging and moving in your ear, so you can ride and train without distraction. I'll admit to being sceptical after trying numerous other sport headphones which just didn't work for me, but Earshots really do deliver on their promise and it's transformed my experience in the gym and on solo bike rides. Earshots are based in New Zealand and are supporting riders like Wim Masters, Sam Blenkinsop, Ray Morrison and Tuto Penne, so you know these things are being tested under some serious riding conditions. If you want to find out more then you can head over to earshots.com. Earshots are generously going to give away two pairs of their awesome headphones to two lucky downtime listeners. All you need to do is to head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash earshots and drop in your name and email address. You've got until the 4th of January to get your entry in. If you're a regular listener, then you'll remember that back in October, we tested the new Canyon Spectral family and looked at what wheel size is best for you. Well, Canyon have now updated their big hit in Torque and created a similar family of bikes with 29, mullet and 275 wheels, as well as carbon and aluminium frame options. So there's something to suit all tastes and budgets. The new Canyon Torque runs between 170 and 180 mil of travel, depending on your wheel size choices. It's DH certified and ready to handle whatever you can throw at it. In fact, team rider Tommy G put a dual crown fork on it and used it for Rampage and Fest series. It really is that tough. But Canyon didn't just want to develop the bike to be fast and tough downhill. They put themselves in the shoes of riders that are heading to Whistler or Queenstown for a season and need one bike to smash out bike park laps, ride gnarly off-piece trails, but also enable them to pedal out into the backcountry without it feeling like a tank when the trail points uphill. And you can fit a bottle cage on it too. The Torque has heaps of neat engineering details like full internal cable guides, double seal bearings and replaceable thread inserts that mean it's going to be easy to live with and maintain as well as being a blast to ride. The Torque is in stock and available now over at canyon.com where you can check out the entire range. As a downtime listener with the promo code all-features-unlock-21, you'll get a free bike guard on all torque carbon and aluminium orders. That code is valid until the 10th of January 2022, but I suspect these things will sell out pretty quickly. So if you're interested, then head over to canyon.com now and check them out. Full terms and conditions can be found in the show notes for this episode. That code again is all-features-unlocked-21, all uppercase. Christmas is rapidly approaching and if you're looking for the perfect gift for your riding buddies, a partner who rides or for yourself, then a subscription to Downtime EP and a Downtime hoodie or t-shirt should be on your list. If you're keen to get your copy of Downtime EP, Mountain Biking's newest print journal, then you can head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. If it's a Downtime hoodie or t-shirt you're after, you can do that at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Please make sure you're following the podcast on whatever platform you listen. There's probably going to be a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it's available. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe where there's links to all the major platforms there to help you. This week, I'm joined by the one and only Wynn Masters. We chat about Wynn's path to World Cup racing, which is an amazing journey that involved working in mines, building trails for billionaires, and doing whatever it took to follow his dreams of racing on the world stage. Find out more about some of Wynn's career highlights, like his EWS win, and some of the lowlights, like racing with a bent arm. We also chat about the awesome Wynn TV, the Battle of the Brothers, Privateer Awards, and much, much more. So, without further ado, here's Wynn Masters. (laughs) 
Wynn Masters, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's, how's things with you? Um, not not amazing right now, but I've got a, got a bit of a cold. So if, if I sound like a pack a day smoker, then uh, that's the reason I'm, I don't actually smoke. So, yeah. <laughs> so if you need a break for a coughing fit or whatever, uh, yeah, let me know. But we're, we're in the UK and doing this in person, which is pretty cool. How long have you been in the UK now? I've uh, been living in the UK since july last year so um a little while now yeah um my wife's job got transferred here so um we ended up here and um not not too bad really like there's plenty of riding around nearby and and more professional riders in the area that i am now here in chichester um than i had over in germany so um, okay it's quite good to have more people to ride with yeah you're close to bernard and not too far from like brendan and people like that yeah ollie as well so Got a good bunch around, yeah. Nice. Have you been able to travel around the UK riding much, or does travel kind of take you away more than you get to ride here? Um, I travel a little bit, but just more not too far. So South Wales, probably as far yeah. as I go, uh-huh. um, and that's pretty good for riding there. Like if I want to go and do decent enduro day, then I go there because yeah. um, the hills here are not really mountains. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah. And what's your like riding highlight so far in the UK? What's the best spot you've been to? it's a hard one um i really like the lake district yeah because it kind of has a bit of a i know alpine vibe to it and it's kind of like some places in new zealand yeah yeah and just like you can go on massive all-day adventure like brayton uh sent me out adam brayton um sent me out on the, this ride and i was like oh yeah i'll be out for that it was like the four passes or something yeah and it was like a massive <laughs> like I, I like that sort of stuff yeah but he was like, yeah, it should be like three, you should do it under four hours or something. And I think it was like six hours. Whoa. But so then my missus was at the hotel, like getting stressed out. Like, where is he? What's he, was he calling Brayton? Like, and I was like, well, it was just took that long. I yeah. couldn't go much faster. It was almost like I was going pretty hard. Yeah. Stop for maybe 10 minutes the whole time. Fair so geez. that's a big ride out then. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I, I liked it, but, um, yeah, he he underestimated the time, I think, <laughs> or or overestimated my fitness, but um, not sure which one. Fair play, good. Yeah, I'm glad you're getting stuck into the riding. There's some, yeah, there's some definitely some good spots over here. Let's um, let's talk a bit about your career with bikes so far. But before we do that, it didn't start with bikes, did it? Start with horses, like your brother, yeah. Yeah, ho- horse or pony at first, yeah. And then I think I I got to the horse, and I don't know if my brother got past the pony, but um. <laughs> Yeah, I was on a, we did like, my mum was right into her horses when we were young, so um, yeah. we had no choice, we were getting a horse, and uh, it was every, almost every evening, every weekend, was spent going to horse events or, or going to the our little farm that we had, uh-huh. and um, riding horses or ponies, so uh, it was a, a good, I think, introduction to actually the mountain biking, but from a completely different aspect. Yeah. yeah. I've never ridden one. They kind of, they scare me because they've got a brain, but I don't really, I don't really trust them that they have. Yeah. Uh, but like, is there an adrenaline side to it? Like if you're jumping and stuff? Yeah, I like- think, well, when we were younger, we'd always be trying to outdo each other, even on the horse. So <laughs> it was kind of funny and we'd see how many things we could jump at. The, we'd set up a jump in the yeah. paddock and go round and round, jump it. And it, it, it was still progression, you know, and, and also the balance is pretty... Like I got on one not so long ago. I was like, "Shit, how do I do this?" Really, like it's, okay. it's quite hard. The balance on the horse, yeah, you know? 
Interesting. So it's, some of that riding that transfers or that balance that transfers into riding, like I think initially, yeah, a lot of that helped to cross straight into mountain bikes pretty quickly. Yeah. And um, yeah. progress faster because you're already done something that's like a quite a weird balance and, and probably it hurts when you fall off as well. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair play. What's the age gap between you and Eddie? Uh, it's two years. He's two okay. years younger. Yeah. So but, pretty um, close. People always think he's older now, so <laughs> I'll take that one. Yeah, my hair, play. my hair is still going strong. Good effort. E- even some some people uh, doubt it sometimes. They think that it's receding, but it's, <laughs> no, I've got no receding yet. So yeah, uh, solid work. Happy I got the jeans on that side, but um, yeah, <laughs> you won that battle of the brothers. He, he got the Kelly Slater jeans, so uh, yeah, he's good <laughs> at surfing as well. Fair play. So how how do you get from horses to bikes? Then when did that get discovered? Um. I think I I got like a mountain bike, a pretty average mountain bike. Well, average then, but it would yeah. have been amazing for me at the time. Was like, and my first bike was a GT. So oh, that's cool. A GT Paloma, which is like quite a cheap, maybe like sort of about a five hundred or four hundred dollar yeah bike, brand new, and so it's full rigid cantilever brakes, but I. Would, ride that all the time every day to school and just practice wheelies on the way to school. Nice. Um, and then it just progressed from that bike to like they bought me a secondhand one from the shop cash converters, yeah. which is like a secondhand dealer. I think you've got it in the UK yeah, as well. Yeah. And got uh, Marin something. I don't know which one it was, but it was like had RockShock Indy forks. Nice. And I bent them pretty quickly, I think. <laughs> Yeah, the old elastomer yeah, things, yeah. yeah. But um, we just started doing heaps of jumps around town and had like a little kind of crew and it, it grew from there pretty quick Yeah, to where we had all jumps in our backyard and it was we were digging every day. How big did they get in the backyard? They took over like we had like kind of two. We got a, the first lawn, which was like my dad's lawn, and yeah. then the second part, which was like a back garden. They took over that whole area pretty much. Sweet. And there was like one jump where you'd like just dug it so deep the to get all the dirt. We dug down to get all the dirt out of yeah. everywhere. And the middle of one of the jumps we could fill with water and jump in. Jeez. So we were like <laughs> we just dig in every day. Yeah. And it, it was so good. Like kids from the school nearby, there's few schools in our area, so mm-hmm. they'd all come to our backyard or like They'd bunk off school and go to our backyard and we'd be at school or something like that. That's mega. So it was pretty pretty good that our parents let us do that. And um, that definitely fast-tracked our riding, I think. Yeah, yeah. Shaped the beginning of your, your riding career. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And you, you went off to boarding school, yeah? is that right? Yeah, I definitely didn't want to go to boarding school, but um, I even punched through a glass window. I was like, I didn't want to go. Jeez. But I got sent because I was like just getting into like – all, all my friends and riding in our backyard all the time and then like our local riding. But in the end it turned out to be like the best thing that I went to that school as well. Yeah. How far away was the school then? Uh, two hours. So oh, right. So far hard, track. Hardly ever go home. Yeah. Like um, probably go home once in a term, which is like eight or weeks or 10 weeks. Yeah. At what age was this that you went off? Like 12. Yeah. That's early yeah. man. Fair days. But it turned out to be the best thing because where I get sent to the school, the riding scene where I lived, uh, where I grew up, New Plymouth, 
kind of slowed down. Uh-huh. And where I went to school, it started to take off. So that was in um, Wanganui. And then I quickly met a young Sam Blinkertop and um, it just took off from there. And that became like we both progressed all the way through. So That's wicked. Yeah. Were it, you guys in the same year at school? Um, he's one year younger. Okay. So he went to the next door school. Yeah. And then I was like pretty much just across and we'd pretty much be – off riding as much as we could and out of school whenever we could. So uh, that's awesome. Yeah, were you good? Were you good kids? Like, or were you skipping class to go riding? Like? Uh, I was skipping class when we could. Yeah, yeah. So quite like at the end of when it went all the way through to school, um, it got to where I didn't have to do too many classes, so I could ride quite a lot during the day, <laughs> cramming the hours in. Yeah, and we're doing a lot of riding. Like yeah. we'd ride everywhere around on a downhill bike as well. Like. <laughs> We do like massive rides on down a bike, and well, for for us at the time anyway, and probably still now, like you don't see kids riding around on down a bike, you know, like no, nah, not these days. Yeah, but um, we'd ride around on our down bikes, and then go and build like little tracks in the hills. We do build tracks all around the town, kind of, and we built like this dirt jump spot that kind of just became everyday thing, sort yeah. of. Yeah. So, like, how many hours were you putting in a week, do you reckon, on the bike back then? It was pretty big because I remember. Maybe like when I was 15, I'd be like, I started to get into like road riding as well. So I'd go road riding and then mountain bike, go back to school, swap to the mountain bike and then go back to school for dinner. Insane. And I was like, just like, just loving it. And it's pretty crazy because it hasn't really changed. So I like always probably still do too much. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard you're yeah. a bit of a machine. You don't, you don't like to be uh, doing much other than riding bikes, right? Yeah. I just, just enjoy it. So, um, make the most of it and, and do as much as I can. Like if I go somewhere, I want to ride all the tracks or like want to see what's there. Yeah. But um, yeah, it hasn't changed. So that's cool. man. It was, it was pretty cool. I, I don't know how many hours total. It'd probably be, I don't know, over 20, but then we're doing school as well. Yeah. And then weekends we'd do shuttle days. So like it was worked out pretty good. There was an older guy that ran the mountain bike club at the time, Charles. Uh-huh. And he he would run these shuttle days, I think, every second week. So we'd be shuttling every second week uh, on the Sunday. And then they'd be racing, like, nearly every month. Yeah. So we just got in heaps of races, heaps of shuttle days, and it pretty much formed a whole crew of riders from Wanganui. Yeah, so you're just racking up experience of racing and riding quality trails super quick, right? Yeah, and and also building the trails. Like We do quite a lot of work with um, the local club and there was a big bunch of guys that would get out there and um, try and make the gnarliest tra- downhill track. Like, yeah. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So how was the racing going then back in those early days? It was all New Zealand-based for you then, right? Yeah, yeah so I didn't, I didn't really – do much international. Um, so it's all in New Zealand. And back then we'd do all those club races and then every summer we do the national series, yeah. which was kind of like it'd be like three or four races North Island and three or four races South Island. So it was just a massive tour. Like all the North Islanders go to the South Island yeah. for a month and then all the South Islanders go to the North Island for a month. Nice. Yeah. And um, it was just like a big road trip with, with all your mates. Like, that sounds awesome. My parents were pretty good to let me go pretty early. So yeah. um, I I could just go off with my friends and do that, and not even when from about 14. And I think at 14 I got signed to Laha, mm-hmm. 
which is a New Zealand mountain bike company. I don't know if you know it. I don't know. So it was like the original gearbox bike. It was like okay, what Zero got modelled off. Yeah, yeah. And they put me on their team, which was like massive for me at the time, but just through like the recommendation of a friend, Glenn Sisarich, who was mm-hmm. like the early 2000s New- best New Zealand downhiller. Okay. And he grew up in my town, so he said, oh, he's, he's pretty good. And then I got put onto the team for that. Sweet. What level of support was that? They're just getting bikes and stuff? Uh, at the start, they sent me a bike, so like that was already like unreal. Yeah. Um, I had like one of the original prototype ones, and then that was the first year. And then rolling into the next season, they ran a whole like nas- team for the National Series. So I just traveled around with Nathan Rankin. Yeah. Um, Tim Nelson, who was like unreal at the time as well, like uh-huh. – um, I learned heaps from Tim because I spent more time with him um, and then did all those national races and they paid for everything. Like we had a credit card and I was like, it was like a a dream at 15, you know, yeah, we could, go, awesome. could go to Subway and order whatever I wanted. And I was like, <laughs> I couldn't believe it, you know? Yeah. And that's it, pretty special. Yeah. So I did like at 15, I had full factory support pretty much for a New Zealand brand, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I think, in the end, it ended up that they blew too much money of the investors' money, I think. So he cut back on the investment and then um, it all fell through after that national series. But yeah. that, that year was like unreal, you know? Yeah, it gave you a taste for what riding could do for you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and already at like 15, I was like professional rider kind of like yeah. getting what the taste of what a professional rider gets, you know? Yeah, it must have been hard to kind of have that – Almost taken away from you when that funding went, though. Yeah, yeah, it was hard. Yeah, definitely yeah. Um, took you back to the square one pretty yeah. quick. Eh? But um, yeah, it was it was pretty good that summer, and I learned so much because I was always with those older guys. Mm-hmm. Like that, that even take me to the pub. You know, I'd say it was <laughs> I'd say I was their son, and it's like it's pretty wild for a fifteen year old. You know, yeah. Just cruising around, living that life, you know. Amazing. So, yeah. What at what point did you decide that you know racing was something you wanted to try and do at a a world level? I guess because it was it was really hard. Well, still is now. It's very hard to come from the other side of the world because racing then was and still is now to some extent very <coughs> European based. Still, you yep. kind of had to be in Europe to compete, right? I know Minar came over to Europe to get going, really, and. It's the same for you guys. Like, when did you realize that was what you wanted to do, and how did um, you go about making that happen? Because that's not straightforward, eh? No, it definitely isn't. Um, I think it didn't come around till like I, I already thought when I was really young that I wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my mum, she, I told her when I was pretty young that I was like, "This is what I want to do, and this is what I love doing." So, um, after we. Got got over the horses. She was pretty upset, but um, still the money from the horse that I had at the time went into my first mountain bike. So that took okay. us into mountain biking. Yeah. Um, and then I always wanted to do that, but I didn't know how I could do it. So it took quite a long time to get to the point where I could get to Europe. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a long road. I had to go to Australia first, or like. First, I finished school, worked for a year or two in my hometown. Yeah. Was kind of getting nowhere and not, like, making enough money or getting anywhere. What were you doing work-wise, like trades and stuff? Just, or? yeah, really crappy labouring jobs. Okay. I did a bit of everything, really. Yeah. I worked for this labour hire company, Allied Workforce. Yeah. 
and they just like their slogan was muscle when you need it. <laughs> so um, I just do all these jobs, like random jobs, and whenever a trade needed a, a labourer, they call that company. Okay. And they can get someone for the day or, or some of them go for like three months. So yeah. did a, like a wide range of stuff and quickly worked out what I don't want to do, you know. So it's like perfect for setting me up for later on, like yeah. I think just to realise that I need to do something. Yeah. And then from that, I was like not really getting anywhere. Like I could save money. I was into drifting cars a little bit and not, not really like putting my money or my focus into anything properly okay. and just living like small town life kind of. So then I realised like I had to go to Australia if I really want to do this uh-huh. and move to Australia and got a job there kind of got help through the Hannah family. Okay. This year in Cairns then, yeah. yeah? Yeah, I moved to Cairns. So they they would help me with riding stuff a fair bit. Yeah. I had like an old bike, I think an old helmet and gear from Mick, and nice. then like they're just helping me with my bike whenever it needed it. Mick's dad like always giving me tips, <laughs> and it was pretty cool. But um, I moved over there, knew, knew like one guy, and then he got me this job down on this farm. Mm-hmm in the middle of nowhere and so I went pretty much straight from the airport to there and then lived in the bush pretty much like in this caravan. Yeah. And this and was because you knew you could make more money there, yeah, yeah? Yeah. So it was all just to try and save more money to get to be able to get to Europe eventually. Yeah. So I just worked flat out with this guy and his dad landscaping. Uh-huh. Um, Miles Mead, he used to be a, a downhill racer as well, so – um, but he'd already pretty much finished and was putting everything into landscaping to follow in his dad's footsteps kind yeah. of. And we just worked like dark to dark every day, like super physical hard work. And it just like kind of set me, it was almost training. Yeah. Like we got real strong, you know. Yeah. Um, And then I'd ride in the weekends if I could and do the local races in Cairns. And they had quite a lot of downhill races. So it was pretty good actually for me to get ready to go to Europe eventually. Okay. Did you work down a mine for a bit when you're there as well? Yeah. I had to um, tell Miles that I was going to a family thing in New Zealand and um, took off to this like fly in, fly out mine job. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, well, I, they called, like I applied for it out of the newspaper. Yeah. And I was like, I'll just call that up and see. And then it was like a good two or three months later that I got a phone call and they're like, oh, I do want to go to this job. Um in Mount Isa, which yeah. is like, was a flight away, like middle of nowhere in Australia. Yeah. And they're like, uh, we need you to go next week or, or it was like real soon. Yeah. So I was like, told my boss that I've got to go back to New Zealand for something. <laughs> and then just went and did that job. So then like we, when we, what we did there was like relining um, of the rock crushing mills for the mine. Wow. And um, it was like pretty physical work, just, Again, like super gnarly labouring work and yeah. quite dangerous if you on the big mills, but um and real hot. So we just do that twelve hour shifts. Good money. And you either yeah, it was good money. Yeah. yeah, for for me at the time, the money was unreal. You know. Yeah. And I even did like a job in Indonesia doing that as well. So like they flew me over there. And I was just like wing it with my other job and trying to keep both jobs. <laughs> yeah. And then like fly back, I'll be like tired because I've just been working 12 hour shifts for like two weeks 
and then go straight back into working 12-hour shifts landscaping. Man, putting the graft in. You did some trail building at some point as well, Yeah, right? that was later on, though. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. So then it worked out that I could save enough money to get to Europe. I think after or all up, I had $11,000. Okay. And I had my bike. So I think then I bought my flight and I was down to like seven and just flew to Portugal. I didn't know... I knew one guy in Portugal from from a friend of mine, Mike Skinner. He introduced me to the one guy who's like, yeah, just message him and like I think maybe Facebook had started or I was just emailing him. Yeah. I didn't get a Facebook account till later in that, that season. So I was emailing the guy and he's like, yeah, I'll pick you up from the airport. And it was like, pick me up from the airport, took me back to his, his name was Bruno. So shout out to Bruno because um, I would be buggered without him, you know, yeah. like. And he didn't know me for a bar of soap and just picked me up from the airport. And then I stayed at his place and went to the Gouvea Maxis Cup, which yeah. is 2008. Uh-huh. And then that started it. I just had to meet people from there. And um, from there I met Alex Evans. Okay, works for Bike Radar yeah, now. now yeah. works for Bike Radar. And yeah. um, he was doing, trying to have a crack at the racing as well. So he was going around in his van and in a tent. And I'd sleep in his van with – he let me sleep in his van with a air mattress that had a hole in it. So I'd just wake up every morning on the floor and we just went to all these races. Wicked. And uh, eventually made our way back to Morsing. Yeah. And that was how it started in Europe for me. It was like I, if I didn't meet people, I couldn't go to the next race. Yeah. So it was awesome. like actually the best scenario because like if, if, you, if you're like put in such a hard place like that, then you have to – Start talking to everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then within like two, three races, everyone knew who I was. You know, so yeah, you made a They're conscious like, that effort. guy's crazy, you know, because <laughs> he's got nothing. Yeah. Were you one of the few people that was sort of really slumming it at that point? Then was there many of you well, on on that level of or lack of budget? Right. Yeah, it's just like you had to. So it's like if if you didn't, uh, if you if you tried to do it any other way, you wouldn't be able to afford it, you know? So I was like, but there's other guys that did it harder than me for sure. Yeah. And uh, we can dig into some of those later, but um, <laughs> it, it was still just um, an unreal year, you know? Like I was just riding all the time, traveling around in all these places. It's like, and just trying to keep my old iron horse running. Oh yeah. You had an yeah. iron horse for yeah. that. This was a, like Sam Hill runs an iron yeah. horse. I need one kind of thing. Yeah. And flat pedals. Yeah. And I'll model everything off Sam Hill because he's the man. Clearly. Yeah. Did you not crack it pretty early on though? Yeah, I had a crack on the head tube. So um, <laughs> I was just like hoping that it'll hold up. And actually I sent off the pitches to Iron Horse. Then they, I had to speak to Sean Heimerdahl, who was the team manager for Monster Iron Horse yeah. at the time. Like go over and I was like super nervous, speak to him. Looks like the big dog with Monster hat on, <laughs> you know. And then – um. He's like, yeah, we try and organise the frame, and then the frame got lost getting delivered to Andorra. So I never got that frame, and it was like, I was pretty gutted because I was like so excited to get a new frame. Yeah, like that would have been the dream at the time. Yeah, and, as a privateer, like getting a yeah. brand new frame. Yeah, and the new colour with like, like the the black and green was like pretty trick. But nice. um, in the end, I just had to. Uh, um, do the whole season with the cracked head tube <laughs> quality yeah. and the the scene back then was 
I think it's fair to say a little bit looser, like there was more partying going on and maybe not less professional, but there was, there was more shenanigans. Do you think that made life easier for you to kind of get to know people? Was it an easier scene to get into then, do you think? Yeah, I'd say if you're social, that was definitely suited your, um, to get into things because everyone was up for a beer after the race or, and if you didn't qualify, they were already having beers because it used to be qualifying and race same day. Yeah. So there'd be people on the beers after qualifying already, you know. So non quali party. Yeah. It already started <laughs> while you're watching the race, you know. Yeah. Well, the other guys go up for their race runs and you, you're down there. And my first World Cup in Maribor, was like, I didn't know what to expect. So I was like, oh, I've, I crashed and I was like, oh, I'm not going to qualify. So I just cruised down. Yeah. And I just missed qualifying. I was like gutted, but like at the same time, it was the best lesson to learn. Yeah. Um, that you just never give up and always push it all the way to the finish. Yeah. Even no matter what happens, and then it's just always done that from that day. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I got straight on the bears, and there's a pretty funny picture of me next to a very young Danny Hart. So um, <laughs> making and friends. I think I'm pretty pissed for t- <laughs> chewing his ear off, but he's he looks like he's laughing as well. So. Uh, Happy nice. No, it was it was already good and that that night dragged into like quite a a big one and um I have a recollection of a policeman's hat getting frisbeed around the bar <laughs> with the policeman chasing whoever's got it, you know. <laughs> and and then uh a big hangover in the morning and I forgot to remind Nigel Page that I had I told him the night before that oh, can you take my bike to Mozing? Yeah. Because it was in his hotel. I'd I'd stayed at the race, my accommodation was in Josh Bryson's van. Yeah, nice. And um, that's actually someone tried to break in in the night too, so door open in the night. I was like, whoa. Oh, and man. these people tried to come and take, but all the bikes were in there, so I was like, yeah. They were like, oh, thanks for staying anyway. Yeah, good job you stayed in the yeah. van. But um, in the end, I didn't remind Nigel to take my bike, and um, I got back to Morzine after the lift that I got and, and he was going to take just the bike. So um, got back there, went to sleep, like it was a long drive. Yeah. It's 12 hours or so. And then went around there the next day. He's like, oh, no, it's not here. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> and my bike was still in um, Maribor. Oh, man. In the hotel. <laughs> and even better, in the hotel where I didn't want to pay for the washing because oh, I got right. my clothes washed. <laughs> And then the bill came, it was like 20 euros. I was like, what? And like, I'd never considered that washing could be so expensive. Yeah. And and not on the, on my budget, that was like way over budget. Like I couldn't, I wouldn't spend 20 euros for any meal at the time, you know? Yeah, fair play. Like, yeah, that's like, a week's worth of food when yeah, you're slumming it around slumming Europe. Off, yeah, whatever pasta I could, you know? Yeah. Um, and then so I was like, oh, no, it will just... I'll just leave it there. And and then, so the bike was there. So I had to go back, pay, pay the washing. <laughs> the guy's like, oh, are you back? And he'd put the seat down. His son was riding it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then he died. So I paid the washing and then I had to actually hitchhike back there. So it was uh, like quite a mission. That's a long hitch. Yeah. It, it took over two nights. Yeah. Just so sleep, pr- what, sleeping pretty, in people's cars or sleeping at the side rough. of the road or what? Uh, a pretty bad, dodgy Italian hotel one night and yeah. then um, just on the side of the road. <laughs> and 
I was getting dropped off like random places. So then did a lot of walking and I had yeah. like this backpack that had all my gear for there. So like my feet got swollen. Oh man. And then that one night in that hotel I was like, oh, just to put my feet up. <laughs> I guess after that, right, it, it's not going to get much harder, can it? Like, No, it's almost like a mental, it's character building really. Yeah, so, um, if you've handled that, yeah. you can handle most things that mountain biking is going to throw at you, I guess. But. Well, the, my first year was full of things like that, so <laughs> it just kept going like that. Yeah. But um, I could dig out of plenty of stories like that. <laughs> but that, that was a good one. And I was even I ended up on the back of some sketchy guy's motorbike for a bit of it because I had my – um, helmet tied to the back of my bag. Yeah. Like a tramping bag with a helmet tied to the back. And yeah. he pulled up and picked me up. I was on the motorbike trying to hold the helmet down for like an hour. With your bike? No, no. I was on the way there. On the way there. Yeah. Oh, man. And then then from there, because it was near to Austria, so I just got a um, short train ride to Austria, did an Austrian national race, like just worked out somehow. Yeah. Like just trying to work out what I could do from where I was and did this Austrian national race and, I think I came fourth and won 120 euros and I was like so pumped. That's awesome. Yeah. So you basically paid for your mistake. Yeah, pretty much. By squeezing well, another race in. Yeah. It definitely paid for it and there was no cheap way other than hitching to get to Maribor. So yeah. it was at the time very stressful, but um, <laughs> it's a good learning. Yeah. All worked yeah. out, all right? Yeah. And that, that season you must have met the the family behind Ancelotti, right? Because it was, was yeah. it the following year you ended up riding for them? Yeah, I think I remember in Fort William, um, after the race, we were in town having some beers, and then I met Tommaso on the beers, and I was like, oh, and started having a chat to him in a bit of broken English, get pretty good at um, explaining things as a Kiwi to to Europeans. You you just have to start sounding like them. (laughs) Um, And you notice that when I meet my friends that do like professional sport in Europe, that only talk to Europeans, then they talk to you like you're a European. <laughs> it's quite funny. But um, so I just speak to him and, and I said, oh, you have the team. And he's like, he'd already been watching what I was doing. So said maybe next year. And then from there it um, all worked out that myself and Brooke McDonald would yeah. be on the Ancelotti team for, cool. for the next year. Yeah. And they hooked you up with somewhere to stay in Italy and yeah. got you properly involved with it, yeah? Yeah, we stay in, in the middle of nowhere really like. Um, this tiny little skiing area, Doganacha, uh-huh. which is actually a, they've got one big lift and it runs every 30 minutes. It's like a family owned thing. I went back there last year and it was like so good to go back and see those guys. It's like full family, like part of the family really for them. That's awesome. And they just welcomed us in, but they didn't live on site when in summer. Okay. Cause it's winter was their busy time, but now they probably would live on site, but then it was like, Everyone would leave at night and it would be just me and Brooke in this big apartment building on the top floor and we were just like there by ourselves on top of this mountain in Italy, like middle of nowhere. And all day we had like hardly any internet. It was um, dial-up, I think. Yeah. So it was super slow if you wanted to look anything. Like all we, all we could really do is like send a couple of messages and um, we'd stay on in this apartment building and then all day the lift would run but it would just go every 30 minutes because it's like a really big one. It's uh-huh. Nearly a thousand meter drop, I think. So then we'd do this downhill track. It's like 10 minutes, I think, or nice. nine minutes. We'd done it fastest. Yeah. And we'd just do this track all day. And then um, they had a lunch restaurant and we'd just have lunch with them and then 
ride a bit more in the afternoon and then either go for like a ride. We had four cross bikes, so we'd just pedal on those. Amazing. And I'd make Brooke ride up the mountain. We'd go down and we'd ride up. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we just did that all the time. Like at the time you wouldn't think about it, it was like perfect training. You know? We're doing massive downhill runs yeah. every day Definitely. and just pushing each other. Or like Brooke was always pushing it the same as he does now, you know? Yeah. Just uh, I'd see some huge crashes and get up <laughs> and ride faster. So I don't know many people that do that. Yeah. And that's how we got the the nickname, the Bulldog. So, uh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And those bikes were pretty special. I mean, certainly to look at, I never rode one back in the day, but they were like, that was a poster bike really. Yeah. The, it's kind of like the classic Italian built bike, like, yeah. like their motorcycles or their cars, but there was the version of mountain bikes, you know? Yeah, polished up uh, alloy looks super trick, and they'd always be polishing it before our races. So our bikes always look real fresh. Nice. And um, it was a father son business with um, Alberto, the father, and Tommaso's son. And Alberto was kind of like a bit of a grandfather figure to us, you know. Like, but he'd always be checking the bike, and I think he sometimes didn't understand us so well because we're a bit crazy and from New Zealand, <laughs> and. It, it's then these uh, Italian family know, and these crazy Kiwis just show up, and they they want to get on the bears or uh, <laughs> like, you know. So we, I think I remember on my birthday we we went for dinner and we were ordering whiskeys because it's pretty relaxed for drinking in yeah. in Europe, and um, we ordered a few whiskeys, and then he he couldn't believe it. He didn't think that we'd be able to ride the next day. <laughs> then the next day we show up and we did like a whole day riding, and he was like, he couldn't understand. So it's pretty funny, but um. They were they were unreal as a team and like the way they could set up our bikes was pretty good for the time. Like um, Tommaso would take the stock Rockshox fork, yeah, and redo the in- internal. Awesome. Um, and they'd always Alberto would always be checking that the fork was plush. Yeah, like putting open puns on the handlebar and just making sure that's super super plush and nice. It's pretty cool what they did. They even build their own shocks so. Our bikes were at the time really good. Yeah. We didn't know though. Yeah, yeah. Did Brooke did Brooke win a junior worlds on that? Yeah, in Canberra. So yeah. that was like for the Ancelotti family, massive thing, you know. Yeah, a world title, and um, that f- I think they started getting a lot more sales out of having us on the team. So it was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. And the year after that, I read somewhere that you were contemplating making your own team called Just Win. Yeah, is that is that true? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, Ben Reed had a, a team as well, Just Reed. So I was like, oh, Just Win would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> but that never quite came to fruition. No, it, it just just kind of like it was very close to it. But um, just to get the re- real amount of funding needed to do it from New Zealand is quite a lot. So um, at the time, it ended up working out better to ride for another Italian team. Okay. Uh Kinder Playbiker. Yeah, which always sounded a bit dodgy that team. I don't know why, <laughs> but from afar it always sounded like some Playboy kind of thing going on there. No, I think the boss Romano would like to look like a the Playboy <laughs> Mafia boss, but um no, it it was for me still really good. Um where Sean O'Connor, Nathan Rankin, Nathan was not happy with the team set up. Okay. So in the end in the middle of the season he disappeared. And um, I knew that he just took off and flew back to New Zealand. And, like, there were things that 
weren't right. And he was coming from being a professional rider before. Okay. So he wanted more. Yeah, yeah. And I was just coming into it. So I was fresh and I was like, oh, I'm happy if, like, I was probably – Bit more open to anything ha- anything going really, yeah. And um, I remember the team manager being like, uh, "When, uh, where is Nathan?" <laughs> I'm like, "Ah, Romano, I do not know." <laughs> and then, then two weeks later, uh, when uh, I found Nathan, he is in New Zealand. <laughs> so he just disappeared. Awesome, just got the hell out of there. Yeah, and uh, it was quite funny. Yeah. Classic. You were based in Aosta with those guys, right? Yeah, Which yeah. Is we like live the bottom of Pila, yeah. Yeah, we lived down in Aosta town. So yeah. um, that is a hell of a place to be based, man. The trails again, around yeah. there and the town itself, like, yeah. such a cool spot. Yeah, it was really good. Um, we had a small apartment pretty close to the lift, so we'd just ride out, go to the lift, and I rode just heaps of runs of that track all the way down to Aosta. Oh, the one from like the mid station down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and just ride that all the time. It's a pretty. And, it's a pretty fun trail that, like yeah. rough as, because it gets yeah. quite a lot of use. Yeah, and no, f- yeah, I think it would just run mud tires most of the time because it's so dusty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or muddy, and then you just like do just laps of that all the time. It was pretty again, like perfect place to train. Sweet. And yeah. you were on lap air bikes for that, yeah. 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 Uh, the had a I had a silver and then a red one. The lap old lap air like the. Look kind of more like the Iron Horse design, yeah, with vertical shot. Uh-huh. Yeah, nice. And that uh, <coughs> that season, you had one of your best ever performances, I guess, at a World Cup, Champrie two thousand and ten, qualified in <laughs> fifth place. And that yeah. was the conditions were rough that year. Yeah, yeah. What, um, talk us through that week from your perspective. What, what was it about that that kind of got you to that point? Well, I think I think the previous two weeks were the contributor to that like me, myself um brooke and sam blinkstop were all staying in sam's lapier team apartment in morzine and we're just uh-huh. like riding every day and then just having a good time all the time like there's just stuff shenanigans going on all the time <laughs> and we just have those the banger fireworks we're putting them in all sorts of things and like <laughs> i think everyone in that apartment building probably hated us and Laurent probably heard about it, but um, oh, so Laurent was running the team. Yeah, yeah so Laurent in our own specialized. Yeah, he was running Sam's team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're we're just there having a good time, riding all the time, and um, that led us into Champry, and I think in qualifying, Sam qualified first, mm-hmm. um, and Brooke eighth, and I was fifth. So it was yeah. like. Whatever we were doing, it was working. Yeah, and sweet. I think it was just the good times and and lots of riding. Yeah, and rough conditions, so you're having to kind of trust things, I guess. Yeah, and I guess being a Kiwi, we're pretty good when it's like really hard conditions or hard tracks. Yeah, so that suited us. Um, I didn't expect to qualify like that, so it was like a massive surprise for the run I did. And if you've seen the interview video. It's a pretty good laugh. Okay, I'll have to look that one up. Yeah, I met a guy recently that had seen the interview video but didn't know me and he posted on this funny page because he he couldn't stop laughing at the interview video, so it was pretty funny. So you had a few crashes on the way down in your race run, yeah? In the the race run, yeah, three crashes and I got 33rd or something. Yeah, which is still a solid result, right? Like now I'd be pumped, you know, but... Yeah, it's incredible. um, Who were you at the top of the hill with other than Sam then? Uh, it was pretty stressful because I'd never been at the top of the hill like that. I was still pretty fresh to it. So yeah. um, I think it was starting before me 
was Petey or Greg, and starting after me was Petey or Greg. So yeah, and okay. one or the other order, and um, so I was like, it was super quiet. Yeah, and I wasn't used to that because I'm normally like having a chat, riding around, mucking around a bit, and like, um, that was pretty stressful. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was still cool. And at the time, my mechanic was Alan Biggin. He was he'd been like the best Italian downhill rider f- over the years. So it was pretty cool to have him there with me and he was pumped yeah. for it as well. So that was, that was a cool experience like at that time, you know? Yeah. What happened? Do you think, did you, did you kind of stiffen up with the pressure or did you go too hard or? Yeah, I think got also uh, the pressure a little bit, but also like um, I think wanted it more because then I saw that the carrot was there. So, you know, yeah, you yeah. know, like, I was like, oh, if I could do better, you know, like the run and qualifying didn't feel good. Okay. And then in the morning practice was like unreal. I was like, I can win this race. So I was just <laughs> went all in, but it was like completely the wrong approach. <laughs> if I'd have gone down and got a 10th, it would have been unreal, you know? Yeah. But, but on some days you, that run could have worked and you could have won, I guess. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. So it's like, things. I was just like, oh, I think I got too excited. Yeah. With, with the fifth already, and then I think I didn't sleep that much before, so I was like definitely nervous because you've never done been in that position where you felt like you could win the World Cup or, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that like getting those qualifying results stuff was starting to turn people's heads though? Do you think that helped like yeah. get the because you were MS Evil the following year? Yeah. Did that? Yeah. It that- definitely definitely helped to and just being myself, um, normally a happy go lucky sort of person and talking to everyone. Definitely helped to open people's eyes that I was there and what yeah. I was doing. You know, yeah, yeah. I think everyone enjoyed uh, having a laugh or laughing, laughing with or at me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, nice. yeah, that's cool. So yeah, MS Evil the following year, two thousand eleven. That season didn't go too well for you, did it? Injuries wise, no. Uh, coming in, I was really strong because I've been doing that trail building. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, tell us a yeah. bit about this. So this is like yeah. some millionaire guy that owns land around the world and wanted trails building, yeah? Yeah. So, yeah, um, he, he like, billionaire um, guy that and his father invented polystyrene cups and patented them in the US. So that's where the money originally came from. Then he's yeah. just got more and more, owns most of the Cayman Islands, I think. So, wow. Um, yeah. And then he got into mountain biking and randomly in Rotorua met um, James Dodds, which um, the late James Dodds uh-huh. um, and Jeff Carter. And then the, between the two of them, they um, set up this trail building business for him with Kiwis building trails. Cause he was like, Oh, who built these trails? Like they're yeah. amazing. And it started from there. Then look, look uh, forward a year or so. And they had a hundred guys working around the world on his site. Jeez. And so I've, before that 2011 season, I went to Chile, yeah. Patagonia, uh-huh. and I was just living on the – it's kind of a peninsula, but it's like in the middle of the lake. So you got to cross the lake by boat, and then it's like – I think it was like 40 minutes on a gravel road to yeah. get – so it's like middle of nowhere. Living there, um, building the trails, and we weren't allowed to work seven days a week, but we worked six days a week. We just did – we were building trails right up the back, so I think we were riding like two hours. Yeah, uphill, uphill, and then dig trails all day. That's a busy day at work. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it was good. Yeah. So were you? So you? I, I think I remember this rightly. 
you were there with Jamie Nichol when he had his accident. Yeah. You were yeah, part was... of the, the response to that, right? I think, in fact, Jamie came on the podcast and said it was your fastest ever downhill run. Yeah, I think it was pretty <laughs> fast. Though. Like, I remember the like, whole thing pretty clearly. Um, we're up on the mountain. It was just started and um, that we're pretty new on the trip, maybe two weeks yeah. of a three-month trip. Um, and one of the – like we're always pranking each other because we – Oh, bit of jokers, but one of the guys just come running down like, oh, Jamie's had an accident and like looking at him kind of like, oh, is he joking? Like waiting for the joke, you know? Yeah. And then it was like his face was white, so I was like, shit. And it was like pretty quick to work out like that it's bad and someone has to ride down. So the one guy had already set off, but I was like just boosted past him <laughs> and got all the way down there and then I had to explain – to um, Spanish-speaking Chileans that don't don't really understand any English, that we need a helicopter, and yeah. they've probably never had a helicopter. Like it's not common to have a rescue helicopter. Yeah, um, and it was just by luck that an army helicopter could come. And Jamie had been working on a rock face with a rock crushing, like a rock breaking machine, but yeah. petrol powered. And the exhaust, I think, was a little bit broken, so it was heating the fuel tank. Yeah, and when he cracked to check his fuel, but he he was like the ultimate, like he used to work like he rides now and he put everything into work. So he'd just like go so hard. Uh, and I think he'd just been going two hours straight da, 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 on the side of this cliff on yeah. a, on an abseiling rope and then checked the fuel and it just went all over him. But the machine was so hot that it was on fire like within five seconds, yeah. petrol fire and just massive and then – he was super lucky to survive really in the end and it was just by luck that there was a glacial stream there and he managed to get off the abseiling rope with burnt hands somehow. Fell down and then got into the glacial stream and that that um that was like the his saving grace that he got straight into that cold water. Wow, okay, yeah, pulled his body temperature yeah. down so quickly or his skin temperature yeah. down, yeah. And they said I think without that he wouldn't survive probably. Yeah. Amazing. Well, good on you for being part of the, but, the rescue crew. And then luckily the army helicopter could pick up a doctor and come, but yeah. that, they don't have a rescue helicopter. But, yeah, I just burned it down the mountain. It's quite far. Yeah. Yeah, it was like decent ride. Well, this, like, is, this is the two-hour ride up, basically. You've yeah, come back we had down. to traverse. We were in a different spot, but we yeah. had to traverse across and then go down. So it was like quite a – I was just going as hard as I could and then get down there and like they knew that I was freaking out so much that something bad has happened. You know? Yeah, full adrenaline. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and then Jamie had to wait for a long time for the helicopter, so it was pretty full-on to see that. I've yeah. never seen anything like that. Yeah, fair play. He's Won't want to again, yeah. Well, yeah, and amazing that he's but okay and able to ride still and took, do what he's done since. So. Yeah, he took that from being just a guy that loves working and occasionally rides mountain bikes to putting everything into bikes and realise what he loves. So yeah, I think – it's just yeah, inspiring to see how how much he did after that. Yeah, incredible to stuff. go on to stand on the World Enduro podium and then yeah, just make a living from riding bikes. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's impressive yeah. stuff. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, you you came off the back of that, I guess, super fit and strong. Yeah. Pretty amped for again a what what on paper certainly from the outside seems like a good team deal. MS Evil. Yeah. Not sure how big the paycheck was <laughs> or if there was one, but like you must have been pretty excited for that season. Uh yeah, I was excited. Um. It was the first kind of like big team that I would, would ride for. Yeah. Um, and who, who were you on that with? Was it Brooke then? Brooke, Luke Strobel, um, Marcus Pickle. Yeah, nice. 
I think that was our crew. Uh-huh. And um, at the New Zealand Nationals before that in the preseason, I was like going pretty well. I felt like it was felt real strong after that trip because I would just do those rider every day. Yeah. Uh, and it was like two hours climbing every day and then work all day. Um, and then at one of the national rounds, I just had a big crash and snapped my arm pretty much in two. And then I was, uh, it was like a kind of a race to get ready for the season. So this was a, it was a compound fracture. It's yep. part of the bone come out and get into the dirt. Basically. Yeah. It went into the dirt and then back in the arm, like, cause it kept tumbling. So like worst possible yeah. case, I guess for infection and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then it got infected after they'd done the surgery. So then I need another surgery a week later. And then the, the surgeon, my surgeon in my town was like, yeah, that should be all right now. I was like, yeah, it's still sore, but he's like, yeah, it will be sore. So I was like, just started racing over in Europe with yeah. the team, um, 11 weeks, I think. That's pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. And with infection, it was probably too quick, but. This is with metal working, was yeah. it? Yeah. On both bones. So you can actually, in theory, it feels strong, but yeah. it was kind of painful at first and then. Just did, I think I did like four or five races and I was starting to build like progress in my results. And then at Fort with them, I was coming down in my race run, I think qualified like 50th or something, coming yeah. down my race run and just hit a hole and like it just bent my whole arm. Like so bent the metal or? Yeah, bent the metal. So oh. the whole arm looked like a banana. <laughs> oh man. And then um, it was, I, was, I knew it as soon as it happened and what happened, but I was like, keep going, finish. And then I was kind of in denial because I like, I finally got to that team that I wanted or like a big team that I wanted to be on yeah. doing what I wanted. Um, that I just try to push on, like got x-rays. It, it didn't look good. Like it looked like kind of just fully bent like your finger, you know, <laughs> if you bend your finger, um, but it was meant to be straight. Um, so I just pushed on, and went to Leo Gang the next race. Um, and I still qualified there, but I couldn't. I remember like every drop, I had to like grip my teeth because in theory, I got a broken arm, you know? Yeah, yeah. And some of the one of the pu- pulling or pushing like impact was painful. Like, I just gripped my teeth the whole way down. What kept you racing then? Like a fear of losing what you had or? Yeah, just like I worked so hard to get to where I was that I didn't want to just go home and, and lose that. You know? Yeah. But, yeah, and, and after that, I, I think I qualified then got 60th or something in the final. So, right. like, there was 80 riders, so I still beat some. It's a good so game with like, a bent arm. Yeah. I was like, all right. And then I just had to go home and get it done. But yeah. There was no other choice, really. Yeah. And you, coming back from that, you then broke your other wrist, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was um, actually riding with Sven. Okay. Um. Sven Martin. So um just riding with him and pulled up on and snapped my handlebar. And yeah. Not good. Then broke the other wrist and then that was a scaphoid fracture, which is like pretty much mountain biker's worst nightmare. Yeah, so there's no blood flow. He right? heals so slowly yeah. and um this the medical system in New Zealand is quite um like they don't they didn't want to operate straight away which is a bit slow. And then, so they waited till they were sure that it wasn't healing, which I went to Europe hoping that it'll heal uh-huh. and it didn't heal. And then I was meant to ride for a small Italian team that, that season. Yeah. 
um, based in San Remo and like would have been perfect. Um, Argentina bite, they were called, but um, in the end, my wrist just didn't heal. So I had to go home and then they had to take a, a bit of bone out of my arm and uh, artery and reattach it to that and then get it to heal. Yeah, man, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. It was. It worked out good in the end, but it took like a. There was a year just lost with that, and yeah. I just lost kind of the previous year. So. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a scary position to be in, I guess, because you weren't you you hadn't quite made it to that level where you were getting picked up by the big teams, I guess. The factory. No, nah, and teams. I wasn't making any money. Yeah. So yeah. Tricky times. Were you able to work or? Uh yeah, bits and pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So you could kind of keep. Yeah, like I'd work when I could and I'd be working with a cast on doing painting or whatever, like painting yeah. the bike shop or whatever I could. So I was always like do something, but it's still kind of hard to deal with, you know, yeah. knowing that you're nearly healthy but not quite. Yeah. Before all that, had you had you already started doing wind TV stuff or yeah, like the, um, whatever that was called initially? I think pretty much. I started doing my own videos in 2009 with Angelotti. Okay. Like, End of season, I bought a camera, went home, brought a camera and a laptop, and I just started filming. What drove you to do that? Because that's when you're on a budget, that's quite an investment, right? Yeah. Um, I had some other friends that were doing some videos, and then I was like, kind of thought it's pretty cool to document what's going on. Yeah. And just started from that. So I was like, yeah, bought a MacBook and a laptop. And I was still working in Australia when I got home, so I was, like, back to earning reasonable money. Okay. Or, like, reasonable at the time, like, I wouldn't be now, but. Yeah. Um, and then so I went to the shop, bought a MacBook. I think even it's pretty funny because I bought the MacBook, got home, dropped it on the floor, <laughs> and I think it broke. Oh, no. So I took it back to the shop and said it doesn't work. Yeah. And then they changed it out. I was like, yeah. Oh, Sweet. That's, like, lucky. <laughs> that was a lucky escape. That's a good start. What what inspired you to do the the pit kind of interviews then? The you know where did Win TV come from? Um, I guess in New Zealand we had like the sports show, sports cafe, which is pretty funny. They just do funny interviews with sports people and always have like people on. And I guess I kind of like the Kiwi humor and relaxed interview, and I like to document things. So just started from there really. That going, and I was doing it a little bit. In 2010, with us, I think, yeah, 2010, I was doing some videos for MTV Cut. Okay, yeah. Where I'd present them or go around and do whatever they were doing at the time, which random challenges or stuff yeah. like that. So and then it went from there. And then 11, um, I didn't do as much, I think. But then 12, I started filming my own videos with interviews. Yeah. Because I was at the races. And I had that injury, the wrist. Yeah. So I was filming with my mate, just filming me and then editing myself, random little videos. Cool. Was it an instant hit? Did it catch on pretty quick? Uh, yeah, pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was yeah, it was unique. Well, still is unique, right? There was no one yeah, doing yeah. that and certainly not in that style with, you know, a more humorous edge and obviously you have the relationship with the riders. Yeah, just know, knowing all the riders and being able to give them a bit of stick, you know, it was pretty good. So um, from there, uh, Dirt, I started working with Dirt quite a bit. So yeah. then, yeah, they, would, they were filming it and producing it and I'd 
think I was getting a little bit of money for each video. So sweet. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Has anyone ever got upset by it? Uh, occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rachel probably, Rachel Efferton probably got the most upset once, but now it's all, we're all pretty good. So pretty get on with really everyone. I think a lot of people didn't know how to take me at first because yeah. I seem like I'm taking the piss, which kind of, but not really, you know? Yeah. It's like a friendly. Yeah. It's just a joke. Kind of yeah. yeah. It's not, I'm not taking the piss out of them, but it's, yeah. I'm joking around, you know? Yeah. But, um, yeah, they, and then they didn't understand it at first, so then it took a bit to get on. But um, most people get into it and have a laugh, you know. Yeah, definitely. And it's good to show a bit more behind the scenes of who the writers really are because sometimes you don't really see that. Yeah, yeah. And now it's quite cool with podcasts and things like this. You can actually learn who the person is. But often with at the, at the race as such, you don't see straight away who, who that person is or their actual personality Definitely. After the race and what their true feelings were rather than yeah. like just the simple questions of how their race went. You know? Yeah, yeah. And you've created some good sort of, I guess, nicknames and things for people throughout the years, like yeah. Jean Girard and, uh, yeah. you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's uh, There's a few things that you've come up with that have really stuck as well. Yeah, it's, it's, I like to come up with a few nicknames for people, so <laughs> normally it comes pretty quick. And, uh, yeah, for juniors in our team, normally get nicknames, so it's it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Do you think it was the, you know, Win TV starting to bubble up that helped you get into the Bulls deal? Because you'd had a couple of years with no real results, I guess, through all yeah. the injury and stuff. Like, I think it was that. And um, I think uh, Boris, Mad Dog Boris, he, he, he was heavily involved in setting the Bulls thing up because it was for the team was run by the magazine that he worked for at the yeah. time. Um, so he kind of, looked out for me and they were looking for a writer that had Mitch Delfs or me and, and then in, in the end Mitch stayed where he was and then I got the ride. So it's like it's just by luck as well. Yeah. Right place, right time and spoke to Boris a little bit and then it just happened and um it was then my first real professional team, you know. Like okay. So proper where I was, salary where I was and- paid and and the team was kind of structured around what I was doing. So oh, nice. Yep. Yeah. What difference did that make then? Because obviously you've been from the very rough end of the privateer kind of side of things through to that. What changed for you when you got onto the Bulls setup? It was still hard at times. Like we'd have random mechanics until I got one of my friends working for me for a season or half the season. Um, It was still not fully professional, but um, just everything was looked after, like food and stuff. You don't have anything so much to worry about, and it's a little bit easier getting to all the races. you got less stress, but um, we struggled a bit with the bikes at at first. Uh, I remember in Val de Sol before the World Cup there, uh, just before qualifying, I noticed that there was massive cracks around the hair tube, so I was like, and my teammate's bike was the same. He did. He was like, oh, "I'm not riding that." And then I was like, oh, "Well, I got a flat tire at the first World Cup, so I was like, I have to ride it." Yeah. And I've ridden crack bikes before, so then it was like, decision made just before qualifying. I'm going to start, and then yeah, I had to try and ride smoothly down Val de Sol, but um, <laughs> perfect place yeah, for it. <laughs> it was, but uh, it worked out. And then I think I got 22nd in the final, but yeah. my team manager had to drive back to Germany to get another frame. Overnight Jeez. from Valdosol. Fear race run. Yeah. And yeah, that was 
pretty mad, but it all worked out. So yeah, got it built up in time. Yeah, and and then yes, yeah, as, as the season went on, we kind of got more and more set up with the the team, and I think at the end of the season got seventeenth at the Worlds, so it's good. Yeah, good year. Happy days. They were kind of a bit ahead of their times, right? A high pivot. Yeah, and- like. The bike was actually really good, but there were things that they didn't quite finish. So, like, okay. just little things that needed finishing, but the company was not fully invested in it. Yeah, so okay. It's quite often the case in some brands, but um, that's how it was and just had to kind of deal with it. But yeah. I did three years with them. Yeah, and the, at the end of those three years, I think, was when you first dipped your toe into kind of EWS side of things. You raced yeah. Rotorua, was it? Yeah, yeah. so the 15 I did Rotorua. That was my first one. I got third there. I was going to say it went pretty well, right? Behind Fab and Jerome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I built up the bike that week. I think like they, they, the Bulls didn't have a good enduro bike. Like yeah. their, their bike was pretty much a catalog bike. And when I'd ride that, it'd last maximum a week <laughs> and I'd snap the chain stay. Yeah. So like, <laughs> so I can't race on that. It's not, it's not safe. Yeah. Um, and I bought a Santa Cruz off Marshy that he organized through Santa Cruz and then uh, built that up that week and raced that and got third, so I was pretty happy. Yeah, that's a really good start into your EWS career. Was it that, that was it the result that kind of made you want to do more or did you just love the format of it? Because just like you said, you're someone that wants to be on a bike all the time. Yeah, I kind of just loved the format and and then seeing that I could do reasonably well was cool as well. So Yeah. Uh, play. Do you think that show, you know, that strong showing in early EWS races was part of what helped the GT thing come together? Because it was 2016 you signed with them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it definitely helped, and and I was going well in downhill as well at the time as well. So um, things were going pretty well all around. Yeah, yeah. It must have felt awesome to sign for GT, like you say, your first ever bike and a place that it it feels like you feel at home there. Like the team yeah. seems to suit you and your personality really well. Like it's all about the good times with GT. Yeah. 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 It's kind of, yeah, it's like kind of home and it's the brand is as a family as such. So I um, feel like I found my spot um, and that to go, f- I had to leave the Bulls team to go there. So it was complicated, but it, I had to do that at that time. Like I couldn't miss the opportunity to ride for GT. Yeah. And even just f- as a rider, your profile, if you ride for a brand like GT, it's much more known than you can't, I can go to someone that I ride for GT bikes. They know. Yeah. Whereas I say I ride for bulls. Most people don't know unless they're in Germany. True. So, yeah. 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 It was, sure. it was yeah tough at the time, but, um, and I remember it being pretty stressful, but it all worked out really well. And, um, I'm now, going on to my seventh year at GT. Yeah, that's awesome. You had a pretty bad concussion in your first year with them as well, didn't you? Yeah, it was the first race too. So um, it was a, a combination of factors that probably aren't the uh, recommended <laughs> uh, what approach to a concussion. Yeah. I um, I think it was last practice before before finals, and I remember, it was just like a weird crash, like slid out and slapped my head on the side. Yeah. Like not super gnarly, but I think there was a rock. So it was not like super painful, but I was lost my balance. Like uh-huh. I couldn't really balance after. Yeah. So it's like hard to ride for that bit after. And then like eventually I could just cruise down and then like got some treatment in the pits, like trying to put my neck into place and stuff. Yeah. And then race, not very well, 
but I still race. Uh, it's probably I wouldn't recommend that to anyone <laughs> to race right after a concussion, and I'm very um, vocal about people not doing that now. Yeah. So, um, did you? Did you, was it a personal pressure or was it a lack of awareness? Yeah, it's a bit of everything. Or? Like um, lack of awareness for sure, and then like you've just got onto the team again, like same like when I had a broken arm, I was like, yeah. And normally I'd ride for anything, so I think my young approach was not not very onto it. But um, yeah, it's fair. No one, a lot of people were doing that at the time. And yeah, less now, but um, at the time, a lot of people would be riding the day after massive um, head knocks. Yeah, <coughs> which wasn't wasn't really ideal. But um, and then then the party afterwards didn't help either, and then. <laughs> Wake up at four o'clock in the morning and fly to the US. Oh man. Um, and I think I'd slept like an hour. Um, so that was definitely a combination of the worst possible way to recover from a concussion. Yeah. So then I got to the US and I think I was the only one that could drive the rental van out oh. of the, the riders after a transatlantic flight. Yeah, with a concussion, oh. with a hangover. Oh, man. And I remember driving and I just had to pull over. I couldn't drive. Yeah. I bet. So, so it's like, <laughs> and they were like, whoa, like the other guy's like, he's not well. Yeah. And then I just spent the week in the hotel. We were there for Seattle. I just spent the week in the hotel sleeping. Jeez. Then flew to Australia. Yeah. For Keynes race. Did like one run or something. And I was like feeling average. So I was like, no, I call it. That is. And yeah, that was the first times when I was like, realize how much effect a concussion can have and and what you need to do to recover really yeah yeah it's brutal isn't it it takes a lot longer like even when you feel better you're probably not it seems to be with a concussion like yeah it yeah takes well, a long time it's it's like um if you break your arm you know it's broken yeah but if you hit your head your brain's not thinking clearly either mm-hmm. so you're telling yourself it's fine like and you always tell yourself i'm i'm good yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I'm glad you're all right now, man. And uh, I guess you take a very different approach these days, right? Yeah, and I definitely encourage others to not do any of my mistakes, but um you have to learn sometimes and and I definitely learned from that quite sure. well, so um I definitely promote people to approach concussions with a lot more care. Definitely. Good and, stuff. And teams to be more open to riders taking off races, which yeah. Which happens a lot more now. Yeah, it's good to hear that it's improving. I still get the impression it's not as good as it should be. be. Yeah, but yeah, I think I think in other sports it's still similar as well. Like if you look in rugby, there's got to be a lot of hits that you don't see. Yeah, where people are concussed for sure. Yeah, there's gaps, right? It's Mm. super hard. It's hard to police it. Yeah, but uh, as riders, everyone's starting to make progress to. Uh, remind each other that <clears throat> you've only got one head, so um, yeah, look after it. Good, yeah, I'm yeah. glad that that's becoming more the norm. Your second season with GT, you kicked off pretty well. You won your first ever Enduro World Series in Rotorua, again in pretty horrific conditions. Tell us a bit about that <laughs> event. Yeah, it was super muddy that one, and and a massive day, I think, which really suited me pretty well. Yeah, um, and I was. I I think I wasn't super confident, but that weather then played it into my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if it was dry, I don't know if I would have won that race. Okay. So I was like, I wasn't coming in real confident. The, the one before I was probably more confident. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but then that weather just really helped. It was so gnarly. Like you were just in ruts with your pedals dragging half the time. <laughs> and there was one stage where I had to run quite a lot of it, Jeez. like run quite a few bits. And yeah. I was like, I've really stuffed that up because I could have ridden it if I'd have hit the corners right. And uh-huh. I think my brother smoked that stage like – got like a 10 second gap on the second or something like that is um and then i knew later into the race that i was leading um and my brother was second at the time i think and then i i think i'm i ride a lot more less risk than my brother so i I got through the last stages pretty safely and he blew up um on the second last one yeah and his dropper post got stuck up so then that dropped him back to third and then i I ended up getting the win, which was unreal. Yeah, that's incredible. And standing on the podium with your brother as well is yeah, pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, that's just like in New Zealand and on a world level event, yeah. to stand on the podium with my brother is like, it's kind of my, that that day almost makes my career as such, you know, because just ticked off everything that you wanted to, to achieve, you know. Yeah, it couldn't be much better, I guess, <clears> could it? Like? Not not really. And um Everyone can say local or whatever, but the conditions were horrible and same for everyone. So yeah. it's like that I did what I could do with the cards I was played and that's that's all I could do it that day and it's cool, man. it worked out. So it was dream come true, really, that one. Yeah. Was there much of a local crowd there to support? Like, Yeah, they they follow all the stages and went through the race, so it was pretty nice. cool. Yeah, and Having, a good podium buzz as well. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think we went straight to the bar and I was like, I want uh, 50 beers. <laughs> and and I was like, yeah, whoever wants a beer, have a beer. Yeah, <clears throat> awesome, good after party. How serious is the Battle of the Brothers then? Because you two have been kind of competing on the same circuit, doing the same races for a long, long time now. And um, you know, it's gone one way or the other. I guess Eddie's sort of found a real strong form the last few years. Yeah, injury. Uh, you know, when that's not an issue for him. But yeah, like, how is it? light banter or does it actually get serious like um <clears throat> it's it's it was pretty much just banter most of the time um we still want to beat each other but i'm way more happy to see him beat me than someone else so we kind of support each other as well um and he's really found his place in the last few years but it took a long time to find yeah um before up until that it was kind of hit or miss quite a lot of the time. And now he found his rhythm and how to race and, and what works for him. Um, most people wouldn't think it's what works for anyone else, but it, that's, he's found his thing and that's, yeah. it's really working for him. So um, he's having a good time doing it and definitely pushing the limits, but it's come at a, at a price as well with those injuries that he's had. Yeah, true. Yeah, there's been quite a few over the last few seasons. Some nasty, some nasty ones as well, right? Yeah, big recoveries, and he's always come back strong, which is pretty impressive. So, yeah. well, they're saying that. I'm sure I read the other day, and I hadn't realised this at the time. You rode quite a lot of the 2020 season with a fractured spine. Yeah, yeah. man, you ride through some injuries, don't you? Well, that one was like, um, I knew it was pretty bad, and. And Maribor, there's a weird crash in Maribor, just a slippery route, and then like awkward crash with. I fell down behind my bike and like over extended my back. Okay. And I, it was like a compression fracture in my back. Yeah. And then I just like 
kind of got on with it. I was walking around like an old man for like a week or so. And then I just got on with it really like there wasn't much I could do because it was before the second race at Maribor, so it was pretty close to racing. Yeah. And we had only short practice then a qualifying run in the afternoon. So I didn't have – if I go to the hospital, then I would miss everything. Yeah. And it didn't – like it didn't feel good, but it didn't feel like I couldn't do anything, you know. Fair play. So I was like, oh, I'll just get on with it, and then <laughs> um, finished out the season, and then got, I had to go to the chiropractor because I was getting heaps of lower back pain. Yeah. And then he like did an X-ray, and he's like, yeah, you've had a fracture in there. That's insane. Did it? So, did it? Like, how was it in loser? Was it uh, still it was not, too bad, not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah. That's mad. Anything when like, you hear anything back related, you assume it's going to be like going to stop you riding, but. No, it wasn't too bad, and I think you just get used to like dealing with things pretty yeah. well. And if you do this sport, like there's so many guys riding for injuries, it's like it's not um, if you're going to crash, it's when you crash. Yeah, Fair and you can't avoid them sometimes. So yeah, that one was just an awkward crash, and it did that to my back, but it wasn't. Luckily, not not too bad. So. Yeah. Um, stuff. finished out that season all right so I was kind of happy yeah and you, you've been a busy man certainly in the last few years you know you ride in a fairly full World Cup and EWS season you're running Win TV at both EWS and, and Downhill you've got a huge social media following you're always getting your wheelie Wednesdays out there and, and keeping that audience kind of busy and interested in what you're doing how do you balance all of that and like where like where's your where's your focus, I guess? Is it across all things equally? Are there certain things you want to do better than others? And has that changed over the years? Uh, yeah, it probably changed a little bit, but it's like just put everything into it all really and, and try and do what I can. Um, I think it's all equally quite important. So I still like to be racing, and if I'm racing, then I want to train. So then I have to train to be racing at a, at a decent level. Yeah. Um, and then – to do all this, the videos around the races, it definitely takes away from the racing sometimes. But uh, I think it's more valuable than not doing it. Yeah. Like if I was going to every race and getting 25th, no one notices if I was getting 45th. Yeah. Like I, I don't think anyone, it makes a huge difference. But if I do the video every race, yeah. they know that I was racing every race. Yeah. And even some races when I don't race, they don't know that I didn't race. But yeah. It, the videos are generally better if I race because then I have a lot more to relate to the rider. Yeah, you've got the context yeah. of the event better, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, I like to do everything. Um, often, sometimes it's too much, but uh -huh. uh, it's hard to hold back from, you know. <laughs> and then getting the privateer thing set up as well is a big, big job sometimes and trying to run all that as well on top. Yeah, tell us a bit about that. Where did the, well, I guess it's fairly obvious really where the inspiration came from, but what made you actually go out and, and make that happen? Um, Vital had always done like a privateer of the year award thing at the end of the season. And then I listened to like a motocross podcast, Pulp MX, mm -hmm. and they were doing privateer prizes yeah. for every race, I think, or for the season. And I think it was like rewarding the riders pretty well. So I was like, that's pretty cool. And I, we don't have anything like that in mountain bike yeah. as, as such every race. So I was like, well, let's make it happen. And it started from there and then just a GoFundMe thing and, and we're away going. And then um, Shimano got involved for this year. Yeah. I missed last year because it wasn't 
was so unsure if this season was even going to happen and yeah. I didn't want to ask people to donate money and then not be able to give it away and it looks I have to give it all back yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So I just didn't didn't want to go through that and yeah. then uh, this season was a lot more clear so I was like we'll, we'll get it going again. Yeah. So we've done uh, 19 and 21 now. Nice. And Shimano is involved now and then hopefully for next year we got a few other brands coming on to get involved so oh, sweet. build it to the next level and then I don't know. We'll probably have to just start a race team because I was going to say, is it becoming a bigger and bigger beast now? Right? Yeah, the money will get too much. I don't know how we'll manage that, but um, yeah, just keep building it, and um, the more riders you can help that are doing good things and want to go after their own dreams, it's pretty cool, you know. Like, yeah, it was really cool to see the riders from 2019 that won the awards go on to do like amazing things with Camille Blanche, world champion, and yeah. then just now a consistent threat to win races. Um, <clears throat> it's pretty cool. And then other riders go on to factory deals or yeah, so on. So it's cool to be able to like be a small part to help them reach their dreams, you know? Yeah, definitely. No, it's been amazing to see. And like you say, yeah, world champions coming off the back of it. You can't, you can't ask for more than that. And Shimano have added a bit of pit space, have they, for prizes yeah. and stuff now? Yeah. So for next year, they're going to have an area in their pits at all the World Cups that, privateers can go to get their stuff fixed or swap out parts. So it's pretty cool to work with a brand that also believes to help the small guys. Cause like yeah. quite often in this sport, the, the ones that go to the top come through from the top the whole way. Mm-hmm. Like you have your top juniors, like Finals. He, yeah. he He's already straight into the best team. Yeah. And then he's just going to stay in the sport for 10, 15 years. And it's like, um, it's not often those ones that come through on their own back make it all the way. So yeah, definitely. it's kind of how, how I really wanted to support those people. Yeah. Is it hard to choose sometimes, like the, the best <laughs> privateer from an event? Yeah, it's really hard sometimes. And sometimes you have to separate two or like uh, I not often have I split the money, but I try and keep it to one rider because it makes more difference for one rider than – giving a small amount to two riders. Yeah. Like, like if you give one rider two grand, they can do the rest of the season, but especially a privateer. Yeah. But um, if you give four riders 500, it might not have the same effect. Yeah. So exactly. that's where I see the difference. But um, sometimes you yeah, really got to split hairs on who's better or what, who's done more. And then I go into like their background, how much help they've got. Okay. Um, what their job was to get there and everything. Yeah. If I can understand what they're saying, yeah. like, depending on where they're from. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work goes into this, right. To make sure that you're doing it in the fairest yeah, possible and way. Normally and- in a very short time frame, because <laughs> yeah. you're like, it's the last thing in our video often that we do. Yeah. And so we've got to find the person um, and then work out out of the two who's better. Yeah. Yeah. Fair play. But, Who's had the best reaction so far? Uh, best reaction. There was one, I think uh, Nina Hoffman was pretty uh, like shocked uh-huh. to get the money. Um, and then last season, who was best? Um, the last race, we had the American kid, mm-hmm. what's his name, on the mm-hmm. canyon. Good question. I can't remember. I know I can think of who you mean, but yeah, I can't think the name. I'll find it. <laughs> we have to remember. I'll find it and edit it in. Dante Silva. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he was pretty stoked. So it's like, it's just good. 
I can really tell from the reaction how much difference it makes yeah. to someone. That and must feel so good for you, like to be able to do that, to be in that position that you've created that opportunity to do that for them. Yeah, it must be a real buzz. Like. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um, and just to then follow them on their journey through the sport as well. Yeah, after and see what what they do. You know. Definitely. See how many more world champions you can uh, get out of the privateer program. Yeah. And then I send everything goes through to um, Pink Bike as well. So then they'll do interviews and stuff with them often. So it, just try and build profile for them. Yeah. Often, like, say you're a privateer, you don't speak to many people or you only speak to your own little group. Yeah. And you get 30th at the race, a World Cup, like, amazing result. No one noticed it unless. Um, you're a bit more of a character or um, other people mention it, you know. So yeah. try and bring shine the light on some others that deserve it and coming through then they go on to do good things. So Yeah, yeah. nice. So what, what are Wynn's top tips for privateers then? Because you've obviously been through it yourself. You've super invested in the guys and girls that are in the privateer side of things at the moment. What advice would you give people that are do you know are following their dreams to try and get to the top of EWS or World Cup? Well, pretty much just not to have any doubts and go and go and have a go. And I like it. It like will never happen if you don't try. So, and the worst that that will happen is you didn't make it. But if you don't try, you're just going to regret it. So, get out there and have a crack and do as many races around Europe you can. Like a lot of guys will go to Europe and just try and do World Cup only. But if you've not done that yet. It's a pretty hard step to make. Yeah, yeah. So if you go and do all the IXS Cup or Italian Cup, French Cup, whatever, it's only going to help you to get to that World Cup level. And that's like my first season. I did like every race I could every week. So it was like the best way to to learn racing in Europe and race against those guys in their own country as well. And it really led me into racing World Cups. Nice. And what about that profile side of things? You mentioned that and it's – I guess that comes easier if you're naturally like a flamboyant character and, you know, maybe an extrovert personality. Some people aren't naturally like that and it's no. a lot harder for them. Like how do you, what advice would you give to riders that are more that way inclined to kind of help them grow their like public or media facing side of things? Does that make sense? Um, well, if, if it's not you, then it's not you. Like, um, Martin, my teammate, would do like minimal social media, uh-huh. and then I'm doing it every day. Yeah, but for me, I see it as part of the job that I need to do. But if if you're just going after race wins, then that can be your job as well. But um, I think it's it's almost like you have to do it. You need to do it now. Like it's part of the job. So just I don't know if you can put put out what you think really is truly you, then people will enjoy that more. Yeah, like a genuine yeah thing. Like if, if you're just after training and stuff and you want to show that, then show that. Yeah. But if you want to show mucking around, then show that. But people just want to see something of you and then they'll know you and then that's only going to help build your profile. So Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, I think as an unknown writer, unless you're going to go there and set the world on fire, then you need to do it. Fair enough. Yeah. So huge amounts of stuff on your plate and there's plenty of different ways you could go as an athlete, as a rider, as someone in the mountain bike world. Like what's next? What are you, what are you focusing on? 
is it is it business as usual are there new things you're looking at like where do you see it all going uh it's hard to say um definitely enjoying what i'm doing now and it every season almost flows into the next so it's already like um already next week going to uh, mega avalanche and reunion island so ah, sweet um just trying to do other events as well yeah. outside of the mainstream and then build in the videos into those as well and yeah. just keep it going really. And I don't know, eventually maybe less uh, big races and more videos, but still kind of want to keep at the racing at the moment. So I'm enjoying it. So can't stop now. Yeah. Yeah. If you weren't there, what would happen to win TV? I don't know. It'd have to be, it'd have to be Ed TV. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Who would you, who would you nominate to take over? Well, Ed could do a pretty good job, but, um, I, I don't know. He, he would probably be the best candidate, but, um, well, he's already got Apple media house on the day, right? So he's, he's already busy. Yeah, true. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) no, I don't, I don't know, but I kind of, I just really enjoy being at the events. So yeah, I don't see it just stopping like that and good kind of, um, keep ticking along racing as well and try and put in some good results next season. Like this yeah. season was pretty hard with a injury, broken hand. Uh-huh. Like quite a lot of the mid part of the season where it was quite a few races. So yeah. that put me back quite a bit, but um, I think this next year should be better and um, can go from there. Where do you think you're more likely to be at a challenge EWS or downhill these days? Probably more challenge in the EWS, but um you have to be able to put in the time to prepare for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and if you're racing downhill every week, that's not really uh, training for EWS. That okay. makes you less fit yeah. than more fit. Uh-huh. Um, so, you, yeah, it's hard to combine the two, but mm-hmm. I still enjoy doing that. And I'll probably do less EWS races because it, the the downhill field is, is a bit more – there's a lot more – more well-known people and and a lot more um, focus yeah. from like everyone tunes in to watch the World Cup. So I've, yeah, for sure. I've got to follow that. Yeah. <coughs> cool. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear Win TV will continue because it would be a sad day when that goes. <laughs> Speaking as a fan of the sport. No, thank you. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to be without it. So definitely uh, hope you stay at the races, whether you're racing them or not, for, you know, in 10 years' time. But, yeah, let's hope Win TV keeps, yeah, keeps churning it out. I think I don't know. Who knows how how things would end up? But um, with all the things going, could end up with my own team one day. It's hard to say. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see. So Cathro's doing this thing with Pink Bike, isn't he? This yeah. next season where he's got a like a, pri- a a privateer factory team sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. So it's cool. It's cool to see stuff like that, like different to the normal approach, and yeah, guys like Cathro doing their own thing and following their way not not just like he's found his place you know yeah definitely and it's quite cool to see that that there's not just the the old days of you just race and that's your only value where yeah. you get a picture in the magazine and the results are printed you know yeah yeah but now it's changed quite a lot so it opens up so many more opportunities definitely win yeah. the team manager look forward to it <laughs> i don't know if it'll be manager but yeah <laughs> but yeah if the privateer thing keeps going, then yeah, who knows what it, what comes? Yeah, yeah, wicked. Oh, watch this space. That sounds cool, man. Um, how do you think mountain biking's doing as a sport? Like it, it, it feels pretty healthy, but you see a lot more of the inner workings of it than I do. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think it, it's in a good place. Like, um, 
don't know many people that don't have a mountain bike now. So, and all like your friends at school that used to wonder what you're doing, <laughs> they're all asking which bike they should buy. So, okay, it's it's changed uh, quite a lot, and it's a lot more mainstream. Yeah, um, it's now just getting the racing to be mainstream, uh-huh. like so that people all have access to watch it. Like Rebel TV is really good, but unless you're not a core fan, it's hard to get them onto Rebel TV. But yeah, okay. So um, I think it's in a good place and it, it can only grow from here. Yeah. Because more and more people are on bikes. So what do you think it would need to grow and to get more like more of your average punters to tune into a World Cup? It's hard to say. Like how do, how do you put that in front of them? Like used to be you would say TV. Yeah. Which would reach more audience, but who watches TV now? True. Yeah. So I don't know, but like, yeah, it used to be like if it was on TV, it'd be bigger. But I don't know how we get it to that next level, and I feel yeah. like it. It's at the point now where it can go to the next level and be relatively mainstream. Yeah. And then that would bring in a lot more outside sponsorship. Which- I was going to say, yeah, we've seen sort of Mercedes-Benz nudge their way in at the World Cup side yep. of things, but no one's followed yet, really. No, no, and not many other teams have big outside sponsorship. Yeah. So that's a little bit what's missing right now, but uh-huh. to take it to the next level, and I think then it would be really, truly professional. Yeah, because when you look back to that late 90s boom, you know, you had yeah, all the yeah. big car brands like Chevy and Volvo and all of that on board. Mountain Dew. Yeah, like, yeah, all, Mountain Dew. Yeah. yeah, all the big mainstream brands. But yeah. I'm not sure if we'll get back to that or not, but it seems like it's heading that direction. And yeah. the downhill and cross-country side, because they're covered well, I think that's that's the difference. Yeah. Do you think there's risk to that, to it like sanitizing the sport or ruining mm. it. I know like, you know, when a sport goes to Olympic level, people get worried about what it's going to do, whether it sort of waters down the sport a bit. Do you think downhill can survive that? I guess it has in the past, but. Yeah, I think um, it it can survive, but it would definitely change things more. Like as it has been the last few years, getting more and more professional and riders are more professional with training and everything and yeah. more focused. I think that just continues on and then it becomes like properly professional sport, like mainstream sport. But um, so it would change things a bit. Yeah. But it's still a sport where we don't race head to head. And I think that keeps it pretty good for the vibes among the riders. And yeah. that's where our sport is really cool. Like everyone supports each other after the race is done. Like there's no, oh, you took me out, so I hate you. Yeah, Like yeah. there isn't motocross or road motorbike racing or something like that, you know? Yeah. Seeing Loic and Amory together at the end of the 2019 season, I think it was probably on wind TV, like post race, you know, huge showdown decided by Danny. Yeah. You could, you know, there's a reason for those two to maybe feel a bit spiky towards each other, but they just seem to get on, which is amazing. Right. It seems like a really friendly sport. Yeah. I think that's one thing the sport really has is like the true camaraderie of the, all the riders and everyone gets on so well. So it's, Pretty cool. Yeah, everyone's sort of got each other's back a bit. and Yeah, they do. If someone gets hurt, everyone's asking about them or yeah. like trying to help how they can or with their their own experiences. So it's quite cool. Yeah, nice. Yeah. But it's a good place to start wrapping it up. Before we do, Earshots are supporting the podcast this month and I know you've been uh, an ambassador, I think, for those guys for a while. I've been riding them for, knocking on for a year, I guess. And 
I yeah, I've been impressed and like they don't fall out of my ears, but you ride a lot harder than I do. How are you getting on with them? Yeah, I've been uh loving the Airshots product. Um and it's pretty cool to see a New Zealand brand doing cool things like this and uh, haven't had headphones that really worked for riding until this, so it's pretty good. They're also good because they don't like I used to always use the in ear ones and you can't hear any cars or anything if you're on a road. Yeah. So then with these you can still hear around you and they never fall out. So uh, it's cool to see a little New Zealand brand doing things on the global scale. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't even thought about that side of things, but yeah, especially in an electronics world, right? It's yeah. not, that's not a normal thing, is it? It's no, always no. like these huge uh, companies from the far East. But. but the Kiwis always think outside the square. So um, if you haven't noticed already, Looking at all our riders, you know. <laughs> yeah, good problem solvers. Well, yeah. talk about that. You've got some good up-and-comers, right? Yeah, really good. Um, some amazing riders coming through. I think uh, Tohodo's really one to watch at the moment. Yeah. And it's really cool to see his progression. And i I like, known him for a long time since okay. he was a little kid, what, riding BMX, watching him at the BMX track in Rotorua. Yeah. And his dad drives the shuttle bus in Rotorua. So oh, sweet. Super cool guy. Yeah. Dad's called Slim. Nice. Um, <laughs> He's, and he's a big, big boy, but he's, yeah. he's always up for a laugh and always followed it, the sport right through. And it's just so cool to see Toyota doing what he's doing on the world level now. Yeah, that was an incredible season for him this year. So Yeah, I hope that it then progresses to the next level from now and he can keep building on that because yeah. um, it's going to be cool to have someone like that representing New Zealand and He's always good for a, a truly Kiwi interview. I was going to say, we yeah. need to get him on the podcast for a chat, definitely, and get <laughs> some races next year and- yeah, he's, he's a very good interview. He's a good laugh and um, sounds like a real true Kiwi. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Nice one. We'll make sure that happens next year. Cool. Let's uh, let's wrap up with our final four questions that we've asked pretty much everyone. Um, the first, if our listeners had £150 to spend to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go spend it on? Uh, it's a hard one because it depends which listener and what their level is, but... um. I don't know. Everyone I've heard has mainly said tires or stuff like that, yeah. but it'd be, I'd be weighing it up between tires and coaching. Okay. So I'd probably get secondhand tires. Yeah. And a coaching day. Nice. Or or join into a coaching day of some sort. Yeah. Do you think you would go? You would stretch it and go like one on one with the coaching, or do you think a group things as worthwhile? Probably still worthwhile because then you watch like the group thing. Like, I've done a little bit of coaching myself. I'm not. I yeah. wouldn't say I'm a coach because I'm probably better at doing than okay than teaching. But um, I, when you go with a group, then you see the mistakes the others make as well. Yeah. Okay. So it's, that's quite helpful as well to see what to, they do wrong. Yeah. Then you can learn from watching that as well. That makes sense. And I think yeah. that's quite handy. So. One on one definitely is good, but the group is good as well. So yeah, you get a bit more time with a coach if it's in a group session than one on one yeah. for that money. So yeah, I think it's not not silly, but you wouldn't get um, a huge amount of coaching for your one hundred and fifty. But probably um, learn quite a bit though. Yeah, if, even just like the average guy, like when I've done some coaching, like just set up the bike like how I would set it up. Yeah, and already they're like, whoa, like. What, what do you normally end up changing? Is it like... Like normally they've got the forks really soft. Uh-huh. So it's like you're going downhill. I, I think you set your bike up for going downhill. So the back generally on my bike's relatively soft compared to the yeah. fork. Okay. The fork's pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. So more sag on the back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, well, you, you want it... If you, 
if you're riding downhill all the time, then you want your bike set up for going downhill. Yeah, and otherwise it's trying to throw you over the front. Yeah, right. yeah they're always sitting in the yeah. forks, sag right in, and then yeah. nearly going over the bars and like struggling to ride it. But then they're like, oh, my hands are sore because my forks are too hard. Like, I don't think it's the forks being too hard. I think it's they're too soft and then you – Yeah. So often that would be the first thing I would start on. And then okay. The brake levers and stuff like that just leave a position and reach. Yeah. Often too far out, so then they're stretching their fingers too much. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Things like little things, Simple but stuff. yeah. If you're new to the sport, like, it's like me on a motocross bike, I won't know how to set up the bike. Uh-huh. But on a mountain bike, I just set up how I think, and then for me that feels good. Yeah. But um, if you don't know, you just set up how, what you think. But yeah, it's totally. often not quite the right direction, and it, it definitely makes a big difference to your riding. Yeah. What kind of sag would you normally dial in as a percentage on forks? Uh, I don't have a huge amount on the fork, okay. so I think it's pretty low. What, like 10 15%? Or? Yeah, something like that. Okay. With, yeah. yeah. Not It's pretty hard to fork compared to the shock. Yeah. Because I ride – my body position when I'm riding is quite heavily over the front. Hence I was going to say the, you've got quite a unique style, right? Hence the seagull. Yeah. <laughs> where's that? Where's that come from? Is that just something you've always had? Have you learned that? Like, don't know. It, like, um, I think when I was in that team, when I was like uh, fourteen, fifteen, I learned off the other guy Tim, and he kind of rode like that. So yeah. then, just followed, and I ended up riding like him. So. Has that style, do you think that style's paid off more as bikes have got longer? Or Maybe. Like- but it's hard to say, like, now if if you were to ride, you want to ride, like, very central and, yeah. and flat back and, like, all of that. But it, often you can't choose your style, you know. It's what you end up with. So. Yeah. And it looks like I'm riding aggressive all the time, so yeah, yeah. it's not bad. Definitely. Oh, yeah. It always looks good and fast in a photo, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Happy days. Like, yeah, Sven likes it, so it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. All right, second question. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Uh, just go and chase your dreams straight away because it took a little bit to get there, but um, I probably would have done it sooner if I was 16 and knew again. Um, I didn't get to race in Europe until I was 20 going on 21. Okay. So if I'd have gone when I was junior, I think Sam uh, Blinkertop, he went then. Uh, his family put everything into it and yeah. and got him over there. But um, I, if I could have made it happen and gone earlier, then I would have. So okay, that'd what, be what held you back? Were you too having too much fun drifting fi- cars or really, yeah, money? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I was drifting cheap cars, but um, <laughs> I wasn't. I didn't have enough money to really go and do it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was that realisation that you could earn big in Australia that sort of opened the door, really, I guess. Yeah, to go and do it off my own back. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was the hard thing at that time, but um, I would, just would have tried to do it earlier. Yeah. That's, that's all, really. But, um, Fair play. And then just to um, ride my own race once I got over there. Yeah. And not, not really get upset or nervous like I did when I qualified well, but, yeah. <laughs> It's natural, I think. It's it? all hard learning, to avoid. Yeah, it's hard to learn, hard to um, like look back and say I would have done different because you might not have learned that yet anyway. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's part of getting to where you are today, right? Which is yeah, I, do, I think good. just racing as such uh, anywhere is going to help you later yeah. on. So you like you look at all the best riders; they've all come from young age racing. Yeah, generally. Yeah, so they're really good with pressure. 
and tend to have st- like if you go on roots and rain they seem to have done stacks of races as well yeah like, you yeah can see from a young age yeah. yeah so that's just do as many races as you can if if put my advice really yeah nice yeah. one all right third question is coaching related if you could have a coaching session from anyone past or present who would it be and what would you want to learn and i'm going to say you can't say sam hill and corners because that's <laughs> been too too common um i think probably in 20 what was it 15 or 14 when josh won yeah would be to get a coaching session with josh uh on a downhill course then yeah to work out how he was carrying so much speed yeah because it looked so easy didn't yeah. it he was sitting down sometimes yeah yeah, yeah. Others are like pushing on. He's sitting down, having a rest, and then pushing on the next section. Yeah. Like, you're like, oh, has he made a mistake or something and given up? And then you realize he's up at the split. You're like, what's yeah, going on? Yeah, quite imagine too. Yeah. So, just learning how to do that would be something. Just carrying speed, I think. Yeah, and holding speed the whole run. So he found something, didn't he, that season or two that just he did. And it's for me, it's almost a shame that he achieved like probably his life goal then, mm-hmm. and not still going now. Yeah, yeah. Like I felt like I feel like he might have still been with us racing now if he hadn't achieved that so early. Yeah. Because it's like taking off your goal. Like if that's what you wanted to do in the sport, then he dipped out pretty early because he's already achieved it. Yeah, yeah, and a great character. It'd be nice to have him back on on a race scene for sure. Yeah, he was he was perfect for all the interviews and stuff. I've got his jersey from that season, so it's ah, sweet. It's cool to have. I've got about I don't know, sixty five odd jerseys, so Nice. That's yeah. a cool collection. Most of them in New Zealand now, but yeah. uh, it's good to have like over the years, one from PD when he won the Worlds that year. So Wicked. some cool ones. Yeah. yeah. When's the Win uh, Jersey Museum opening? I don't know. I'm working out how I can display this or how we will set this up, but maybe uh need a bar or a cafe or something one day. Yeah, mate. That would be a nice yeah. little uh, retirement project. Hey? Yeah, yeah, it'd be good. I'd definitely come and visit that, especially <laughs> if it was in New Zealand. There'd, yeah, there'd be a lot of uh, stuff that I can hang up in there. Yeah, yeah. some memorabilia. Yeah, Happy no, it's days. cool. Yeah. Like it. All right, last question. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Um, every day? Well, normally ride my bike because <laughs> apart from like I've had this bronchitis cold recently, so yeah. I almost get uh, – it's hard when I can't ride. Yeah, how do you feel? Like you've been off the bike for a week or so, right? Yeah, it's like pretty over a week now. Yeah. So it's pretty hard like just to be missing that every day. And I think just getting out on your bike or exercising is the best thing yeah. mentally for a person, you know. For sure. Like you feel so good when you come back. Yeah. And I then I can have what I want, eat what I want. I've been training all day or yeah. riding. Normally, I, and I'll ride whatever. I ride all sorts of bikes. Anything is uh-huh. all enjoyable. So And normally – do a lot when I ride so yeah do you ever have problems with like overtraining have you always managed to get away with it sometimes they end up like with a cold but I haven't had anything for a couple of years so yeah like now is the first time in a while okay and I was going to quite a few events before that so I was probably pretty run down but yeah fair play like motocross events and that and yeah. then riding as well on the side and I don't know it's easy to pick up a cold and I think there's something going around with without anyone being sick for so long yeah, so, definitely. There's plenty this winter. I'd say, yeah, bene- benefits me most is being out on my bike. Cool. Like mentally, that's the best thing for you. It's almost yeah. almost meditation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Can't argue with that. Yeah. Nice one. Well, if people want to keep up to date with what you're up to, where's the best place for them to head? 
Uh, easiest is probably Instagram. So yeah. just at Winmasters on Instagram. Nice. With a Y, not an I. Got it. We'll put a link <laughs> in the show notes. Yeah. And Win TV's over on the GT YouTube. Yeah, GT YouTube channel. If you want to catch up on any of the uh, Win TV videos from last season. Yeah. Normally just put in Win TV and whatever race you want to see. But uh-huh. um, and then we'll probably do a few more going into next season with some other events. We'd probably do one at the um. Down in the reunion island for the mega avalanche. Sweet. Maybe There's quite in, a few big riders going to that, yeah? I think so. Yeah. I think Nico's going. So Nice. That'd be good. Yeah. It's a shame to have a cold now because I wanted to be able to race properly. <laughs> it's a proper race. So Yeah, a chance yeah. to try and uh, have a have a good have go a battle, yeah. Yeah. But um it'll it'll be a good laugh anyway, and it's cool to go somewhere new and make the most out of what we do. Like yeah. it's pretty amazing how much bikes can uh show you around the world. And, sure. and connect with so many different people. Yeah, it's a cool. That's the cool thing in social media as well. So, like, you just start following along someone else in different bike sport. Yeah, and they follow back, and then it it connects the world. Really, like two wheels just connecting the world. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Have you been to the Reunion Islands before? No. Nice. So yeah, that's it's going to be cool. Yeah, that's uh, where Flo's from. Yeah. Yeah, Flo yeah. Payet. So yeah. already spoken to him a bit. So it should be good. Wicked. Yeah. Well, I hope you have a good trip. I hope you get over this bronchitis and uh, are able to get back on your bike yeah. very soon because it's clearly you're chomping at the bit to get out. No, it'd be um, good to get back out. Yeah. But, but thanks for your time. It's been super interesting. Find that more. Hope the next season goes well. Looking forward to seeing you between the tape and on Win TV and various other projects then. Yeah, thanks very much, and um, thanks for having me on and keeping these um, podcasts going. It's been good to learn a lot about all different riders from different aspects in the sport, and um, it's cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Nice one. Cheers. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Wynn. I really hope you've enjoyed it. A massive thanks to Canyon for supporting this episode. They've just launched their updated big hit in torque with all wheel size options covered and both aluminium and carbon versions available across a wide range of pricing. If you want to get your hands on one, then you can get free bike guard with your purchase by using the code all-features-unlocked-21 at the checkout over on canyon.com. That's all-features-unlocked-21 all in uppercase. Also, a massive thanks to Earshots. They've solved the issue of headphones falling out while you're riding with their patented magnetic ear clip design, so you can keep the motivation high while riding or training with your favourite tunes or podcasts. You can find out all about them over at Earshots.com. To be in with a chance of winning one of the two pairs of Earshots, just head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash Earshots and leave your name and email address before the 4th of January. Don't forget to add a downtime EP subscription and a downtime hoodie or t-shirt to your Christmas list and start dropping hints to whoever you want to get it for you. Or you could pick up a sub or some merch for your partner who rides, your riding buddies, or even as a nice little treat for yourself. For EP subscriptions, you need to head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. And for hoodies and t-shirts, then you need downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you're still listening and you've got a bit of spare time, there's a few things you can do to help out. First up, tell your rider mates about the podcast because the more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. Secondly, share the episodes on your social media. It's an awesome way to spread the word and it helps get some buzz going around the episodes too. And then if you fancy it and you've got a bit of spare time, a review over on Apple Podcasts is still really helpful. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride. <laughs>